The idea has always been to be able to have a self-sustainable teams that can operate using herbal medicine in post-disaster, off-grid, austere, rural, whatever, remote areas, but also, of course, function anywhere in an urban area or even just make people better at what they do herbally in the middle of a clinic in downtown on an office, high-rise or whatever. You're listening to Plant Love Radio, episode number 66. Welcome to Plant Love Radio, a place where you'll discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and resilient life through the wonders of herbal medicine. I'm your host, Lana Camille, a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. You'll love my amazing guests, herbal teachers, clinicians, medicine makers, growers, and artists. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, friends. I hope you are having a good week. There is a lot more unpredictability in our world these days. As a result, many are looking for ways to be more self-sufficient, resilient, and prepared. These are just a few qualities that define my today's guest. Sam Kaufman began his medical education in the military as a United States Special Forces medic in 1984. At the same time, he became highly interested in herbalism as a way to provide health care in remote and post-disaster regions with a minimum of medical supplies, both for acute care and trauma, as well as for chronic conditions. This was the start of a long journey into the world of plant medicine for Sam, with thousands of clinical hours as both a medic on teams and in military emergency rooms, as well as working with herbs throughout the following decades. Today, Sam is a registered herbalist with the American Herbalist Guild. He has taught herbalism subjects for almost 30 years and has worked as a clinical herbalist for over 15 years. Sam founded and runs a survival and herbalism school called the Human Path and Herbal Medics Academy, offering wilderness medicine training, herbal clinics, online and on-campus programs throughout Central Texas and around the United States. Sam also co-founded the outreach organization called Herbal Medics. The organization applies integrative medicine to help medically underserved communities in the United States and abroad. Today's show notes are filled with incredible resources from Sam. To get access to those, please head over to plantloveradio.com slash 66. Enjoy. Sam, hello. How are you doing? Hi, thank you for having me on here. I'm doing great. I am very excited to welcome you to the show. We met a few years ago at the American Herbalist Guild, and I remember the first time I learned about you and the human path. You were demonstrating a set of first aids, and I was so inspired by you that I invested in it. Then the following year, you were on a program as a speaker, and I remember one particular moment. You were talking about emergency backpack, and you said that if you have one, but you never open it and have no idea what's in it, 
you will be completely lost when the time comes to use it. I was very much inspired by your presentation in awe of the skills that you teach others. I wanted to invite you today and perhaps take a step back and talk a little bit about how your journey begins. Tell us a little bit about your roots. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I always talk about the fact that my orthodox medical training came from the roots of special forces medicine, which is by its own right, in my opinion, probably one of the the most intensive medical training schools or courses that I know of anywhere in the world, certainly in, in America and, and certainly in the military. And, and that means really in a sub, compared to civilian training as well. So that's where it started. It's true. But honestly, I grew up in a very plant literate family. We grew our own food. In the summer, we garden. I grew up as a child in Washington State until I was 11, and we moved to Colorado, which I always consider Colorado my home. Mm-hmm. And we started again with soil and with gardening. But in Washington State, we had about a quarter acre garden that we grew. The whole family participated in that. And I remember, as long as I can remember back, my mother explaining to me that she talked to the plants and the, the plants she talked to always did better. And as a child, I remember talking to plants at that age and getting this relationship to the plant world. My mother just recently passed away, as I was just mentioning to you. We had a memorial service on Zoom with all my family. We have a big family, seven kids and some other relatives and friends. And everybody was kind of sharing memories. And that was one that came up for me of how much influence my mother actually had on me, a lasting influence in the world of plants by doing that. And she loved gardening. We grew up in a very, what would you call like a high work ethic family. Mm-hmm. And from a very early age, you were out there and we remodeled a lot of homes doing you know, construction and doing gardening and doing yard work and, and all of that stuff. And I just remember doing so much work on the soil and in the soil. And every spring as a teenager, going out to till the garden, this is how we did our gardens was still kind of the more orthodox method. And I remember doing that barefoot every spring and just that feeling of my bare feet in the earth. It was like an indescribable feeling and nothing else did that for me. And plants, I, I loved plants. Well, even at the age of 13 or 14, she gave me a special spot, an area of the garden to grow herbs in. And I didn't know anything about medicinal herbs per se at the time. It was more culinary herbs, but I was growing plants. That attachment to plants I carried with me. And I got into natural medicine at the time. It was a distance education in naturopathic medicine before I went back in the military. For me, it was a re-entry back into the military a second time to go into special forces. And even going in, I had to make a choice between doing that or going to uh, TCM, Chinese uh, medicine school, and, and was really kind of weighing this both sides. I, I, I had the desire to go back in the military just because I felt like I had lost that challenge in my life mm-hmm. when I came back out. I was in for four years, came out, went to school, got a degree, <clears throat> and then really felt like I needed that challenge. And then second of all, after really looking at all the different, you know, different special operations from Navy SEALs to Army Rangers to pararescue to Green Berets, I realized that the only place I was going to get the medical education I really wanted and the way I wanted it was going to be as a special forces medic. So long story, but that's what got me into my orthodox introduction. And that I would say is sort of a cross between being a tactical paramedic on the Mm -hmm. one side and a medic and a field medic skills, and then being maybe a nurse practitioner on the other side, it's kind of a marriage of those two worlds. The old model when I was in was still left over from Vietnam was the prolonged field care, austere medicine. What do you do when you are the higher care? Your medical director may be sitting a thousand miles away and you may only be able to get radio contact once a week. Thank you are it. And you have to have more than just doctor skills. You have to have nursing skills and you have to have medic skills. And you have to have trauma, but also acute care and also chronic and even veterinary medicine. It's just amalgamation of everything together. I guess my point is that I was already very much into the concept of plant medicine before I ever even stepped into special forces. It was called the Q course and then did all that stuff. 
But even in my entrance into the Q course, uh, the qualifications course, I found that herbs played a huge role. I have that a story that I've told a million times, and if you want to hear it, I'll tell it again. Of but course. About eight months into the medical portion of the Q course, for a medic, the uh, medical portion at that time was the first thing that you would do. As things have changed now, but that time you did one year of medical training as an 18 Delta that a lot of people fail out of. In my class of 83, as an example, 13 of us that started that finished together. And there are recycles that come in and people that shuffle back from classes ahead of time. But that gives you an idea of how many people make it through that the first time. Mm -hmm. And about eight months into that, we get into, at the time, it's called a med lab or goat lab. You're using, it's called life tissue training. You're using goats, basically. Mm -hmm. And those goats are being anesthetized and and put into all kinds of situations from trauma to gunshot wounds to um, long-term care. And they're your patients. You're not allowed to use the word goat there. So I get there. At the time, the first half of that course was in uh, San Antonio. And so I did that there, did my internship for, um, for a month, and then went down to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I get there, and I, oh, it was about a week before, maybe less than that, before the, the Go Lab started. And so I had a friend that was there already who was a, a, an SF guy. And we went mountain biking, and I ended up getting in a mountain bike wreck and mm. uh, breaking my thumb. So I had an avulsion fracture of my left uh, thumb. And uh, so I couldn't make a fist. I couldn't, I had no grip strength. So the bone was completely pulled away. Uh, I x-rayed it myself. We had our own x-ray facilities and all that, but I had to go up to the hospital and do the real thing mm-hmm. and, and work with the doc there. And so they said, well, it's no big deal. You're going to recycle medically, but we'll need to pin it. And I was like, at that point, there was no way I was taking a recycle. I wasn't going to get through this course one shot or not at all. I had a son that I hadn't seen in a year and a half. And I was tired of being in this course. At that point. And so I begged him and he allowed me to cast it. And he called me an idiot, said I would never have grip strength again. And I wasn't going to make it through the course anyway with a cast on and what I was like thinking. And he didn't want to ever see me back again or he'd give me an article 15. So just get out mm-hmm. of here, get a cast on your way out the door. So I got a cast on it. I got back to the barracks and I cut the cast off. I knew there was a little new age shop that had some herbs in it. So I went down there and I didn't know I probably had a Materia Medico of, of maybe a dozen herbs at the time. I was just getting into herbs. But I knew comfrey and a new horsetail, and I knew what they could could do for me. Mm-hmm. So I bought those two herbs, about a pound of each, and went back to the uh, barracks, and I put them into little packages, and I put everything under my locker. I was scared. I was terrified. They were going to think I was hiding pot, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I made a bunch of little poultices, basically, and I carried around about five or six of those a day. And it, I mean, you're working like 18-hour days there. It's insane. And sleep deprivation. But I would every three or four hours, I would go into the, the bathroom and I would wet another poultice using just some, some sterile four by fours, which we had, you know, mountains of those. And I'd uh, put the herb in there, get it wet, and I'd put it on that broken thumb and I'd wrap it back up with ace wrap. And of course, we had tons of, of, of medical equipment, so there's no problem right, to do all right. that. So I walked around with that ace wrap and I had about three weeks before trauma started. And in trauma, in goat lab, you're going to have an airway and a breathing and circulation issue. You're going to have a blocked airway. They're going to stuff goats, latex gloves down the, the nose and the throat. And you're going to have to do a cricothyroidotomy. And you know you're going to have to do it. And you know you're going to have to deal with a, with a punctured lung. And you know you're going to have to deal with an arterial bleed. But you don't know where they're going to be or anything. But the one thing you can count on is you're going to probably have to do a cricothyroidotomy. And that takes an immense amount of grip strength with the hand that holds the trachea. And that was my left hand because I'm right-handed. And so I was really concerned about being able to hold the trachea and do this. And you have to have like a Kung Fu grip. A goat has a much deeper neck than a human. But my point to this, it's a long-winded story, but my point to this, I made it through. My thumb would ache afterwards, but this was my kind of trial by fire into herbs was realizing that in three or four months, I had full grip strength. I was able to totally use my hand. To this day, I mean, I don't have any arthritis, no problem with that. I didn't get an open reduction internal fixation on it. I used herbs. 
And it was like my big trial by fire of the fact that, oh my gosh, you know, these herbs not only work, they work extremely well. And I was sold at that point. It's like, I need to learn this stuff and I need to make a part of my life. And then that carried on through special forces. For me personally, as you know, I found situations where we were really low on medical supplies and you couldn't count on a drop coming in. And what are you going to do? Well, the sustainable medicine around you, of course, is herbal medicine. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with teammates. The, The SF medic on a team oftentimes your teammates will bring their family and, and, and they'll come to you for medical stuff before they'll ever go to a doc. They trust you more. And mm-hmm. so I found myself using herbs for teammates and just saying, hey, don't dare tell our medical director that I'm using herbs because I would have just gotten hell for that. Oh my God, I would have gotten in all kinds of trouble. I mean, the herbs were looked on with such skepticism. They still are, but they're coming around slowly. But but I would have been thought of as like a quack and a charlatan and oh my God, he's using herbs. But the point is that they were working for my teammates, the buzz was on. By the time I got out, people knew that's what I was doing. I felt pretty confident about just kind of the friends and family approach that I'd done so far up to that point. Absolutely. This is such an awesome story. Thank you so much for sharing. In the past decade or so, probably longer than that, your passion for wilderness survival skills, first aid and first responder situations have been sought out by so many different people. It feels like every day these skills are becoming only more relevant and more important for all of us to have. Could we talk a little bit more about several of the most common topics related to emergency medicine? For example, in your years of practice, what were some of the most common areas that seem to come up all the time? What are some of the most practical skills that everyone needs to have? Yeah, so that's uh, an interesting question to talk about that. You kind of have to look at the reality of what we call emergency medicine versus what we write about or think about when we say the words. Back when I first, you know, was doing medicine, the emergency medicine specialty was just starting to be born. And it was such a big deal. Everybody's like, oh my God, it's actually a medical specialty now. A doctor can specialize in emergency medicine. But they quickly became the gatekeepers, really, is what mm-hmm. they became of medicine. So they're dealing with everything from people who don't have insurance that have a sore throat or a cough or a sniffle all the way to somebody who got hit by a bus. Within that huge spectrum, what is emergency medicine? Well, the most common things that we really see day to day in a home environment are going to probably be infectious disease. It's respiratory. Sometimes it's gut and maybe a little bit of genital urinary, but generally speaking, it's going to be infectious disease that we have to deal with in an acute care situation. Mm -hmm. And the good news is that herbs are amazing for this. They work so well if you know what you're doing, especially if we're talking viral infections. They're incredible and and far better than most pharmaceuticals for many different viral infections. I I will stand behind those words uh, based on thousands and thousands of clients over the last basically 30 years, but really the last 10 or 15 of really intensively Mm -hmm. working with Mm -hmm. it. So emergency-wise, the things that you need to be able to deal with just in terms of first aid, I feel like, are being able to stabilize unstable situations enough to either transport somebody to higher care or for them to be able to heal and not get hurt further in just day-to-day moving around or whatever. Along with this, you also need to be able to recognize red flags. So these are kind of the big things. How do you stabilize? Well, there's just basic bandaging and splinting techniques. So you have a boo-boo or you, or you cut yourself all the way to maybe a really deep laceration, all the way to a broken bone. Right. What are the things that we're going to be able to stabilize it with? And B, what are the skills that we've learned to tell us hey, this is beyond our level of expertise Mm -hmm. and we need to take this to higher care, an x-ray machine, or we absolutely need stitches. Maybe we could get by without the stitches, and certainly I've done that many times. But ideally, if we can do that, let's get in there and let's make sure there's not going to be an infection in a a couple of weeks or a week, you know. 
that's a big spectrum of stuff uh, where we're maybe a little bit safer in terms of using herbs and not necessarily on the trauma side, but on the acute care side is dealing with that sore throat. And maybe it's a viral uh, upper respiratory tract infection, or I have these sinus infections. Every time there's an allergy season comes up, I get another sinus infection or, hey, I ate some bad food and diarrhea and vomiting, all, food poisoning type of thing. Not that that's mm-hmm. viral. Or I keep getting these urinary tract infections. I get some antibiotics and then it goes away. And then six weeks later, it's back. Uh, these are things, the acute care area, where we're going to see a uh, very common uh, usage. And what I usually tell herbalists, students, there's three areas that I think that you can get up to speed with and be pretty functioning, at least for family and friends, pretty quickly. If you can function in the areas of mucosal support, in other words, learning how to work with the mucosa, and especially for infectious disease throughout the body, the mucosa is that inner you know, layer, uh, inner skin mm-hmm. that we have. And over 90% of infectious disease comes, you know, enters our body through our mucosa. So if you can work with that, and know how to stabilize that and how to not only uh, uh, support, but also to be able to nourish that terrain. The second area I would say is liver gut and, and, and emphasis on liver because most of the things that we can affect the liver with are going to affect the gut for a lot of different issues. So if you can work with the liver, and this is generally more towards chronic issues or, or issues around digestion, maybe there's an underlying chronic issue, but we have these acute flare-ups that, that are, are more acute that we're having to handle. And then, you know, so those two areas I feel like are really important. And then the third area I feel like overlooked a lot is being able to support and nourish the, the immune system and the lymph. So if you can work with those three areas, that gives you a lot of use across chronic and acute uh, care type stuff. If you want to be functional and practical, I'd say in the shortest amount of time, those are the areas I would suggest people normally work on first. That's wonderful. Thank you. So when you look at those three areas, if you had to build an emergency apothecary or had one of your kits, what would make it into one of those kits? What are some of the herbs you would immediately think of populating it with? Sure. So when we're talking about the mucosa, that's a pretty simple one. That's a slam dunk. If we can get herbs that are going to stimulate mucosal immunity and at the same time support those mucosal cells themselves. So a lot of our herbs that are, have here polysaccharides are marshmallow, root and leaf, plantain and, and licorice and, and uh, almost cyprielm. These herbs that have a lot of mucilaginous or demulcent uh, quality to them mm-hmm. are generally herbs that have these mucopolysaccharide support or type uh, polysaccharides that are going to be really good at supporting that. Along with that, herbs that will stimulate mucosal immunity tend to be herbs like an echinacea and spilanthes and uh, prickly ash that have that ability as we coat the tonsils or we coat the, the inside of the, the back of the, the oropharynx uh, with them, we're going to get an immune reaction, whether it's an increase in neutrophil and, and, uh, and macrophage activity or, or volume in that area, whatever it may be right. that happens with the submucosal lymph, a lot of times if we stimulate that, we find that those two things there are going to work really well. So those are some of the mm-hmm. herbs that are key around the airway. And when we say the airway, I'm talking about the nasopharynx, so the oropharynx, right. the upper respiratory tract, basically. So those are great. Along with that, though, if we're just sticking in the respiratory tract, it's also good to be able to do things that are going to help expectorate and relax the smooth muscle and help us with breathing. And this could be everything from allergies to an upper respiratory tract infection or even a lower respiratory tract infection. So we start working with herbs like our pleurisy, like our, you know, Asclepius tuberosa or Asclepius aspirula down here, and even just the common milkweed. All of those are going to be useful uh, to be able to do that. Grindelia is another one of my big favorites. Gumweed mm-hmm. is, is really useful for helping to bronchodilate, especially for allergies type stuff, to lower that mast cell, to inhibit that histamine reaction a lot of times as well. Back to plantain is is, is kind of one of those 
herbs that does so many amazing things on so many levels for the body. Uh, it makes a difference whether you're using it fresh or dried, in my opinion, uh, when we're talking about something where we want a mucosal vulnerary uh, and we want an effect on the respiratory tract, it's better to use the freshly made uh, plantain generally, in my opinion, you know, whether you do a multifractional with it so that can include uh, juicing or soaking or all of the steps that we do with water before we add in the alcohol to be able to preserve it. Those are all herbs that I feel like are really important up there. When we start getting down to the liver and the gut, of course, there are, there are so many. Any of our bitters are going to be generally helpful. But we have so many different herbs that have different effects. What I do is I kind of divide it down into an even liver support versus liver decongestion. In classes, I usually have a matrix. So an X and Y axis that gives us herbs that are good at one and not as good at the other, all the way to herbs that are good at both and so forth. So herbs that I use a lot for liver, one of them is a local a Southwest type herb, and that's wafer ash, Ophelia trifoliolata. It's an amazing herb in that it's both a decongestant, but it's also a very good liver support herb. But that's not one you're going to just be able to go out and find on the internet, it's, uh, unfortunately. Can you repeat the name of it one more time? Yeah, it's called a hop tree or wafer ash, and it's Ophelia, E-T-E-L-E-A, okay. is the okay. genus, and then trifoliata is the species. Okay. It's actually a citrus family and uh, arguably probably has some berberine in the leaf. And it's got mm -hmm. this citrusy berberine type of bitter taste to it in the leaf that's just pretty profound. Mm -hmm. The bark and the leaf both uh, you can use, but they're generally used for different different purposes to some extent. Uh, bark being more of a cold and flu type of, of herb you know, for, I mean, other things too, but that. And, mm -hmm. then the, and more of an eliminative. And then the leaf being more of the gut and the liver. But I use them both together. I'll just prune a branch. I have like a handful of herbs that I feel really work better fresh. And this mm -hmm. is one of them. So a dried wafer ash just doesn't really do it for me. So I always harvest it fresh. I used to separate them and then use them that way. But I just mix the whole thing together and use the bark and the leaf together now. And I really like it that way. But I probably talk a lot about an herb that you can't even really find unless you grow it. So Central Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, parts of California for sure. What about our listeners from other areas? What would you recommend them to consider instead? So what I usually go for then is I go for gentian as sort of a substitute for that. Not quite the same in a lot of ways, but also an anti-infective in some ways. And it's definitely got similar uses as a bitter. I would say gentian is maybe a little more of a decongestant than it is a supportive than whey fresh is. But that's just my personal opinion. So yeah, lots of good liver decongestants and, and supports. Milk thistle, obviously. Plantain, again, comes back into the picture. And there it doesn't matter if it's dried or fresh, in my opinion. The alcubin is what we're looking for there. That's a good liver support constituent. But then blessed thistle, of course, comes in there. And, and then on the gentler side, we can get artichoke leaf and chicory you know, root. And then mm -hmm. dandelion root, of course, fits in there. And dandelion greens fit in there as well on the bitter side. Of and course. for a few other things that are a little bit different. All of those and so many more. There's so many good herbs that we can use to mm -hmm. help stimulate and decongest the liver, which really affects the, the entire digestive process. These are things that also help with eliminative channels. We start looking at things like uh, organ grape or even barberries or burdock root as we start to get into where the decongestion of the liver affects the lymph and the skin. So you're working with somebody who's got maybe chronic auto-inflammatory type stuff, you know, whether it's eczema or psoriasis or rosacea or whatever it is that you're going to start mm -hmm. looking towards mm -hmm. the liver there. Those are good herbs to be able to look to as well for something like that. Uh, so there's a variety of reasons that we want to work with, with liver herbs for sure. And many of those liver herbs also are going to affect general digestion in a number of different ways.
I want to take a pause to let you know that I put together a quick guide summarizing the emergency medicine plans we're discussing here today. To get this guide, please head over to the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 66 and download your own copy. One more announcement. The winner of our last episode's raffle is Lara. Lara, Zoe's beautiful sugar maple pitcher is being sent to you. Congratulations. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. And now back to our conversation with Sam. The third area that we were talking about, just the lymph and immune, this ranges everything from a really strong lymph movers where we're actually moving the fluid or the lymph itself. And you have to think about the lymph now. What, what is the physiology of the lymph? Our lymph capillaries are down at the level of our capillaries of our blood, <clears throat> our cardiovascular system. And they're picking up the waste products that are too big or maybe not the right polarity to be able to come back in and be flushed out through the venous system. And these capillary mm-hmm. beds, we have two different processes going on. We have a hydrostatic and we have an osmotic pressure differential that keeps the fresh oxygenated uh, blood flowing out uh, into those capillary beds. And then we have the waste pickup on the venous side. So if we have molecular compounds and trash and debris or whatever at this microscopic level that isn't making it back in there, the lymph plays a huge role in there in being able to drain that area out and get rid of those toxins. So if we can move the lymph itself, that's huge. And of course, the classic lymph mover that's very strong and also on the toxic side is our poke, our mm-hmm. phytolaca. But there are many other herbs that do that as well and gentler at it. Stilingia is another Southwest herb you're not going to find in stores or online, but it's one that I like, like to use. Ocotillo is decent, it's gentle. But ones that are really popular are going to be like your gallium cleavers is a very gentle lymph mover. Arguably, perhaps dandelion a root may be a little bit of a lymph mover there as well. We find red root uh, probably ha- plays a role in moving lymph as well. So we have a handful of good lymph movers, but then also we want to know how do we stimulate the immune system. And, and right. so the immune system, we divide it into in two levels, innate versus adaptive. And our innate immune system is that part of our immune system we share with all the vertebrates, which is going to be something that recognizes self from non-self. And so here we have our macrophages and neutrophils and these white blood cells that are going to work on the innate level and don't necessarily have a memory to them like our adaptive B cells and T cells do. And so that process, however, has a huge overlap to it. There's a lot of communication that goes on between these two worlds of the immune system. So to support local and even systemic innate immune system, the the ones that I mentioned before, echinacea, you know, is very well known for this, to be able to boost of those. Bone set arguably may do some of that as well. We can find herbs that kind of help support the immune system that way, as well as herbs that help support the adaptive immune system, of which herbs like astragalus are famous to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. arguably uh, ashwagandha may help as well in that same way to be able to support the function of not only the memory cells themselves and maybe uh, boosting that, but even just the creation of uh, these white blood cells in the bone marrow, which again, that's where the ashwagandha may be very helpful. So these give us a general trifecta of herbs to be used in there that are going to have, of course, a lot of overlap with other areas of our body as well. But that gives us a pretty good foundational, practical friends and family type approach to be able to, to deal with infectious disease. That is awesome. Thank you. I mentioned earlier that you create kits. They're a little bag that contains different types of tinctures that someone can carry with them. So what is typical? 10, 20, 25? Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. So uh, the kits are kind of ranged from being really small uh, and being just maybe focused on one thing. Like there's a throat care kit, for instance. It's got maybe three tinctures in it, and it's got some other stuff in there for specifically for throat care and, and an application of herbs through that part of our body, all the way to a full-on kit that's got a whole bunch of first aid gear in it and then has I want to say 13 different tinctures and two different powders, three different salves, I think, something like that. Okay. So the areas that those focus on are going to be some of the things we talked about, but a respiratory, like a, a respiratory formula, that the biggest one we have is like a four-ouncer, and the rest are two-ouncers in there are going to be like a cold and flu type of herbs. When we say flu, we can mean all kinds of different upper respiratory tract, virus, you know, infections to include help supporting us even in something like coronavirus. Although that's a whole another topic that, that of we, I have a whole pro- set of protocols for, but still give us some help there to anti-infective for bacterial infections to parasitic, both helminthic and uh, protozoan infections. Gosh, there's so many uh, urinary tract is in there and then the gut and liver kind of uh, formula in there. Mm-hmm. So kind of cover the spectrum of these sort of shotgun approach to having these pre-made formulas. Uh, a note on that is with our outreach organization, Herbal Medics, we noticed the very first year that we went to Nicaragua, I think it was 2011, we were packing in there a whole bunch of formulas, but also a whole bunch of simples, of course, to be able to work with in the apothecary. We would literally be seeing sometimes 100 people in one day, and a day would range from like 6 in the morning until literally you'd think you'd be done at 9 at night, and then a family that had walked 25 miles shows up, and if you're open for another hour or something, mm-hmm. you're not going to turn them away. I mean, they've walked literally 25 miles to get there, and they're sleeping with a relative somewhere in a village. Or the first place we went, you couldn't get in by car. And so I found that these pre-made formulas were very efficacious and efficient in their mm-hmm. in the apothecary sense. You could just dole them out very quickly when you had this high number. But the bad side is you know, it's much harder to really um, individualize uh, you know, the right. formula the way you need to for somebody that you're working with specific problems. Of course, of course. So you talked about your trips to Nicaragua, and I want to talk a little bit more about this. But before you do, in addition to everything that you are teaching on this topic, have you found books, blogs, videos that you really love and that you recommend to others on the same topic? Yeah, I would say there's only one book that has followed me this entire time, this 30 plus years Mm-hmm. that I still use as a reference. I don't really use books for reference much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd much rather go online and find research stuff. But the one set of books is the Peter Holmes uh, Energetics of Western Herbs, mm-hmm. uh, the two-volume set. And it's probably going to cost you somewhere between 150 to 200 bucks, but it's worth it, I would okay. say. Okay, yeah. thank and, you. And if you're yeah. doing that also, uh, the fourth edition, this, that's the latest edition. There's a lot of publishing errors in the earlier three editions. So if you get a cheap set, and you okay. find out it's the second or third edition. I mean, one of them is actually missing like 50 pages. Okay. All right. I'll definitely include them in the show notes. Thank you. So, Sam, today, along with your lovely wife, Suchil, you run the Human Path. And your school includes a number of different programs. So you have Herbal Medics Academy that you already mentioned. There is an off-grid engineer and scout programs, plus a multitude of different courses. So I want to ask you uh, to talk a little bit about how you came up with the themes for these programs, and also why do you find these particular areas to be especially important, and what type of training do they include? Sure. So 
The idea is very well thought out on all of this. It wasn't just random, like throwing a bunch of stuff together. The idea has always been to be able to have a self-sustainable teams that can operate using herbal medicine in post-disaster, off-grid, austere, rural, whatever, remote areas, but also, of course, function anywhere in an urban area or even just make people better at what they do herbally in the middle of a clinic in downtown on an office, high-rise or whatever. So it's always applicable. It's never just something that's only for one purpose. Around that, then, it's what are the skill sets that are necessary to do that and be self-sustainable as a team? So let's say you're going in post-disaster for a hurricane or whatever it may be. Uh, the last thing you want to do is go in there and be a burden on the resources in that area that are already under burden. You need to be able to take care of yourselves. So the core of that is the infrastructure, which is the human path, is four areas. So those four areas are off-grid engineer and medic. And then what we call provider, it's gone through a few different name changes, uh, but the functionality has always been the same, and then uh, scout. And so the idea behind that is we're able to provide all of the structural stuff we need. You can't have a clinic without clean water, right? We need clean water. If we can, we need power. Uh, We need structure to be able to work, and we need at least a floor and a a roof, even if it's just tarp and, and straw thrown down on mud, but we need something. Mm -hmm. Uh, we need the ability to have logistics to be able to move stuff in and out and around and package, know how to pack up a trailer and know what a generator is and how to work on these things. And even stuff with engine and and automotive stuff at one point we were getting into. So you can take that as far as you want with off-grid engineering, all the things that fit under that. And the next, the people actually providing care are what I would call herbal medics or herbalists Mm -hmm. Uh, and and preferably herbal medics that they've had at least a, a wilderness first aid, if not a wilderness first responder through us. But the medic is really more of what is what are the infrastructure that we need specifically for the clinic to run the clinic? How do we do that? How do we set a clinic up? How do we run a clinic? How do we manage a clinic? You know, everything from administrative and paperwork and all the stuff there to, to being able to put an apothecary and a, and a clinical areas and have a flow of traffic and understand what are our minimal um, requirements going to be for that. And of course, they have to communicate with off-grid engineers to be able to make that happen. Uh, but that's the medic. And then the provider, which we used to call it the hunter-gatherer, and then we had mm-hmm. the urban hunter-gatherer, is really about food and about taking care of our own team. So mm-hmm. the team's taking care of other people, but who's taking care of the team? You know, that's this has been born out of experience because we've had some really dicey experiences with people getting really sick on the team and when in off-grid and, and in a totally different country. And how do you deal with that? So the provider, that's their job. So kind of like a team manager, team medic, but also how do we plan for our nutrition? So let's say we've got two people that are deathly, you know, allergic to something. And how do you deal with that if you're working with a group uh, for food? Now, we also have a format of teams where everybody kind of has to be responsible for their own food. But those are very short and small teams, about three to four person teams that have to go into an area and are kind of more of a scout team providing a minimal amount of medicine as well. But for a big team and a big project, we got to have a provider in there as well as for dealing with all of those things. And then the scout is crucial for being able to gather the information we need in order to be able to perform and, and help a community or uh, you know people that are in need and find out what it is they need from us, not what we think they need, but what do they need you know from us and what are they telling us they need that we can provide and we can help them with. And so that's the whole idea behind that information gathering, but also all the things around that. Where is your nearest level one trauma center if we needed it? Where did we gas up when we did uh, Hurricane Harvey support out in Houston and all along the Texas coast? 
we had an entire, really part of our scout team was a dispatch. We had mm-hmm. people running dispatch literally all the daylight hours of the day. And we had students all over the country that were plugging into that. And we have a great instructor for that. He's amazing and a ham radio expert that was helping people with the dispatch. And so we had this all plugged in. We couldn't find gasoline. So we're driving from San Antonio and outlying areas and Texas up to Houston, and all the gas was gone because of mass panic buying. And mm-hmm. so we had to have literally our scouts or our dispatchers phoning ahead and rerouting us. So we're all set up on Google Maps and they can see exactly where we are. And they're telling us, okay, take a left on this highway. And there's going to be a gas station up here that says they've got gas. And that's how we had to go and make our whole way up there. Uh, so that's a good example of where scout comes in. And then also the security of the team. Mm-hmm. And, and by security, I mean, what are your security issues? And especially in a foreign country, this can be a real problem. If you're in an area and you aren't aware of Everything from laws to folkways and mores, whatever may be issues around that, if you're not already prepared for that ahead of time, and then you also are really watching yourselves, even in an area where you're helping somebody out. If you're talking about somebody on your team that's walking around with a wristwatch that costs more than the people you're helping make in a year, and right. you're not lying around, I'm sorry, you know, the most honest people in the world are still going to be pretty tempted to take that, even that kind of stuff too. And then of course, other even more se- severe security issues. Those are things that the scout has to, has to be really aware of. But that is all just, if you think of a pyramid, that's the bottom of the pyramid. And then the next level above that really is our herbal medics is, you know, and our herbalists who are able to run the clinic. And this includes our apothecaries and our medicine makers and uh, people running the apothecary as well. That all sits on top as of a very well-structured infrastructure that allows us to do that. All of these ideas really, I have to you know, give credit to special forces for that mm-hmm. infrastructure piece, because that was what I did and saw in a military sense and in a tactical sense and, and not for the purpose that I'm using it now and totally different specialties. I mean, mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. engineering, commo and weapons and medic on a, on a special forces team. But I took those and basically said, hey, that's a great idea. How could we modify that and make it into something to be able to use in our medical mission to help people? And then beyond that, more importantly, how can we have a, a school at the center of all of this where people get the training they need? Uh, both didactically, hands-on, but then also under stress and scenario-based where we put a little adrenaline and a little bit of uh, pressure on people, a little bit of sleep deprivation and see how they function. Then we can tell who's able to function in teams the way we need them to. As that happens, you kind of get people move to the areas that that work best for them, as well as you really see some people that just really shine in that kind of an environment. And those are the people that we always try to to make sure, hopefully they're interested and we are able to get them along into our different uh, herbal medics projects and missions. Really fascinating idea. So in order for someone to actually train with you, do they need to be on site? What are some of the requirements to attend? Anything that might be of interest to our audience? Yeah. So of course, um, with the pandemic, things have shifted, but not as greatly as you think with us, because we actually were pulling our curriculum uh, into a more of an online format about started about eight years ago mm-hmm. and uh, really been kind of hit the ground running right then. We probably have well over a thousand hours of online curriculum that's a didactic uh, portion Mm -hmm. of it, that people are going to need to learn that one way or the other. And so it's better that they learn that online. We have Mm -hmm. a whole system. It's not just like we throw it in your lap and you're left to your own. It's very interactive with lots of Q&As and lots of study sessions, some assignments and, of course, quizzes and tests. But make sure that people get that information. So then when we come to the school for hands-on intensive, anywhere from three days to 10 days, they Mm -hmm. give students a chance to 
really put all that to work. But we expect students to be able to come in there and usually hit the ground running, with the exception of a few courses where they're designed to be for anybody off the street. Otherwise, as people have done this already online, when we start talking about a percolation tincture or we're talking about a certain style of suturing or whatever it is that they're here for, they're not going to raise their hand and say, well, what are you talking about? They can mm-hmm. hit the ground and they know all of that stuff didactically. So that's the hands-on intensive. And then beyond that, you know, of course, the scenario-based training has to be on site as well. But again, probably 80% of our material is online. And so a person could get a lot out of the way without ever having to set foot on the, on the 50-acre campus. So the pandemic hasn't really hurt us that badly yet in terms of the on-site. We're not doing anything this fall, and we'll see how spring plays out. But even if we mm-hmm. had to wait a year, we've got a backlog of a lot of students that are working through a lot of material online mm-hmm. that they have to get through anyway. We have two doctors on our faculty, Dr. Pearson and Dr. Uh, Kyla Helm, who's a functional medicine doc. Dr. Pearson is also a former special forces medic uh, who became a doctor and has been a doctor for 40 years, who works with us in the austere medicine program. A lot of people get almost confused because there's so many different things to study at our school. Uh, but that's the truth of the matter is that that's what herbalism is. So we have a clinical program that's it's at least three years to get through. There's a lot of material with pathophysiology modules, our phytochemistry and our botany and all the clinical hours you need. And it's designed to fit across with the AHG, uh, RH, registered herbalist uh, Mm -hmm. requirement, and even some of our medicine making that gets you in there or gets you the requirements that you need. The uh, apothecary program is advanced medicine making, and we've got two 12-week semesters or a year of online didactic, and then we've got six different three-day intensives. Now, this year, we're taking those intensives online as well. So you can learn about multifractionals in an intensive. Along with the basics you get in that one year, you get a really strong intensive into mushroom medicine or multifractionals or internal medicines, external medicines, food as medicine, and so forth. That's its entire program by itself for people that want to maybe uh, sell, they want to start a brick and mortar or an online store and sell formulas or sell tinctures or sell extracts or or whatever they're going to do with uh, herbal medicine as a medicine maker. We have an entire family medicine program. Most schools, when they say family medicine, they mean it's like a, a cut down version of a clinical program. And it's not. This is specifically coordinated towards female medicine and, and it was run and created by our midwife herbalist uh, Katia Lamone and a nurse midwife as well. They've worked together to create this program. And this is uh, all of our midwifery related, our pediatrics, our, our prenatal, our postpartum uh, medicine. We have a doula certification program that's like twice the hours and far more demanding than a typical DONA, you know, uh, D-O-N-A, DONA um, I always forget what that stands for here in the U.S. program. We have an emergency birth intensive in that. Then we have an entire program on stewardship and understanding how to grow plants and medicine as a business, as a small business. And then really what my thing is at is the austere medicine program. And that's what I've been doing with Steve Pearson. Uh, So it's a really good program run by two former special forces medic taught in a lot of the ways that we learn to teach as special forces medics, but with a huge materia medica and and all the things that go into it with herbal medicine uh, and all the pieces that go onto that. And then we have these little, you know, courses that kind of are part of that with our wilderness first responder, wilderness first aid courses. Right now we've got the whole venom course, herbs and venomous animals. We've got wound healing, herbs and wound healing. We've got herbs and viral infections. And all of these are are separate modules, but they also fit into some of these other programs. The wilderness herbal first responder and wilderness herbal first aid are the only courses I know of of their type anywhere in the world that give you not just a certification, you know, a card as a WFR or WFA, but also give you herbal medicine, actual experience-based empirical t- tables and charts and 
protocols to be able to work with herbal uh, medicine. And it's the WFR is sort of the precursor to the austere medicine program. It's like everything that you do in the field, and then hopefully you've got higher care available. And the austere medicine program is, okay, you did the WFR, that's a 10-day course to learn everything you do in the field and then get them to higher care. Hey, guess what? There is no higher care. Bridges are out, the entire economy's collapsed or whatever, or the hospitals are completely full or we're in a civil war or whatever. Now it's the austere medicine course that we're talking about. And so the whole thing kind of ties together into that big piece as well. And finally, I'll say in part of the clinical program that we've added in that's really wonderful is with Dr. Kyla Helm, who's a functional medicine doctor, also started as a doc in the army. And then uh, it's a family practitioner and we got her functional medicine board certification. And she and I have been working together for over eight years and we've created this botanical functional medicine course that has three or four parts to it. Right now, we only have the first part out, which is, again, it's 12 weeks, very, very packed weeks. that will come out in January again, and we're working on the other two parts uh, coming out. And Kyla is an amazing teacher. Uh, she also does a nutrition course for us as well. Thank you. So, Sam, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation, but I have a couple of more questions for you. For our audience, if people want to learn more from you or about you, where and how would they find you? And then the last question that I have for you are your parting thoughts for this conversation. Sure. So in terms of contacting and all that kind of thing, the best place to hit us on the web, type in thehumanpath.com or .net. Org, they're all going to get you to the human path. Okay. That is the core school, but it became confusing. The, the majority of people that are coming to our school are for herbal, mm-hmm. for plant medicine, because that's probably 80 to 90% of our curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so it became horribly confusing for people after a while to see a blacksmithing class and a survival course and a bow making class and all those things wrapped up around a medicine making course. So we took all the herbal stuff and we put it into a separate website. It's not a different company. It's the same school, just a different website. So it's more organized for just herbal stuff. And that's mm-hmm. Herbal Medics Academy. And it's actually herbalmedics.academy. And then if you go to YouTube, it's The Human Path. It's youtube.com slash The Human Path. If you go to Facebook, The Human Path. But we have also the Herbal Medics Community page, I think it's called. So if you, if you look for Herbal Medics, you're going to see our Herbal Medics page. You'll see our Herbal Medics group. It's probably got 15,000 in it. That's very active. A lot of people are always mm-hmm. acting uh, in there. Okay. okay. Great. Thank you. And then on Instagram, I'm Herbal Medic Sam, but I don't really use Instagram much. I would say Facebook is probably the best way to see us okay. on social media. And then YouTube will give you some, some videos as well. We have a store called mm-hmm. HerbalFirstAidGear.com where I sell Lots of different uh, formulas, the the herbal first aid kits you were talking about. I have a practitioner formulary that is not limited to practitioners, but lots of functional medicine doctors and NPs and even some naturopaths, chiropractors use it. Specifically, it's one of those things where you need a PDF to explain what the different formulas are. If you ask for it, I can send it to you. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And any parting thoughts for today? Oh, yeah. I wanted to thank you again for having me on your podcast. I think that podcasts like this and things that reach out to people are really crucial, especially right now, uh, to be able to to help people feel like they're connected, uh, but also to help people become informed, especially with uh, the COVID-19 uh, going on. You have to be careful what you say. But again, viruses is one area where herbs are incredibly useful and, and work I've said this for years about my own uh, protocols for, for herpes family viruses, for instance, for, for shingles and HSV 1 and 2 are far, far more efficient and push the problem back to where it's really not much of a problem at all if you, you know, are using them. 
as opposed to something like acyclovir or a pharmaceutical. And the same thing is true here also with coronavirus. We're going to find there are many different protocols. I have a whole set of protocols for this that are very, very useful. And I'm not here to say anything even remotely that I'm curing coronavirus with herbs. But Mm -hmm. what I am saying is working with herbs to support the body's health and allow the body to do what it does with a cardiovascular, with a respiratory, with a gut, with the kidneys, whatever that, that area is that, that is under attack is extremely potent and works really, really well. So uh, this is a time where people, I think, are reaching out and understanding that and realizing that. This is absolutely amazing. Sam, thank you. Thank you so much. I am sure that a lot of our listeners will be excited to visit the, the website and to learn more about you. Thank well, you again. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation with Sam Kaufman. For all the resources and links mentioned during today's episode, please head over to the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 66. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting me once or on a monthly basis. The best way to do this is through the website where I post the giveaways co-fee.com slash plantloveradio. You can also find the link on my website. Are you listening to Plant Love Radio for the first time? Please subscribe to the podcast to seamlessly get future episodes downloaded to your device. I'm so thrilled to introduce you to many amazing guests and topics. And of course, nothing says thank you better than sharing this show with a friend who might enjoy it and giving us a five-star rating and review. Thank you so much in advance. The music you hear in the introduction was written by a neighbor of mine, David Scholl, and is called Something About Cat. My deepest gratitude to Bill Gilligan for this opportunity to play it. Thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate you. Until the next time, thank you for loving plants and planting love. Mm-hmm.